0: The following is a repeat broadcast of the Global Research News Hour, originally airing April 6, 2018. Was Martin Luther King's assassination 50 years ago the result of a high-level conspiracy? Who was James Earl Ray, and what role did he play in the assassination? Who was Lloyd Jowers, and what role did he play in the plot to kill King? What motives did J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI have in seeking the death of the civil rights leader? Why would the media downplay, if not completely distort, the facts surrounding the assassination of Martin Luther King, even if members of the King family were critical of the official story? On this week's Global Research News Hour, on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the death of the famous civil rights leader, we spend the hour discussing the evidence that there was a high-level conspiracy to assassinate King and conceal the truth about it. Our guest is noted human rights lawyer, author, and King family friend, William Pepper. On this week's program, the plot to kill Martin Luther King, a conversation with William Pepper. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of April 6th, 2018. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and Campus Community Radio Station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe territory on the homeland of the Métis Nation. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. A precipitous decline in household wealth, real wages and quality of life is framed by the government and corporate media as prosperity and stability. This scenario is being challenged with the stark reality of rising racial and class tensions in the U.S. and the escalation of a war being carried out both domestically and abroad. Dr. King saw the situation clearly when, in 1966, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference took its campaign to Chicago and later Cleveland the following year. It is this aspect of the civil rights movement which is routinely overlooked by the establishment which heaps false praise on the leader after he was brutally isolated and assassinated at the aegis of the racist state. Drawing the links between institutional racism Economic exploitation and war is important in understanding the struggle of the 1960s and the present. That comes from the article Dr Martin Luther King Jr. 50 years later the struggle against racism, war and poverty continues by Abayomi Azikiwe, posted April 4th. The Americans couldn't win in Vietnam with voices like that of MLK to contend with the home front could not hold. Yet It was several years before America finally withdrew its claws from the stricken country. And so it promises to be with Syria, where no serious commentator believes that Assad can be prevented from regaining control of his country, as Ho did with his. But still, America insists on prolonging the pain by attempting to colonize Syria's oil-rich wild east by forming new mercenary militias with tame tribes by conducting relentless information and economic warfare. That comes from the article Martin Luther King, Lesson for Today, Militarism and Economic Exploitation, Blatant Racism at Home and Imperialism Abroad by Peter Ford, posted April 3rd, originally peering at Beloved Syria. Despite the vastly more perilous state of our planet, many people and organizations around the world are following in the footsteps of Gandhi, King, and other nonviolent luminaries like Silo and are engaged in what is effectively a last-ditch stand to end the violence and put humanity on a path to peace, justice, and sustainability. Let me tell you about some of these people and organizations and invite you to join them. In Bolivia, Nora Cobero, works with the Movimiento Humanista. The movement has many programs, including the convergence of cultures, which aims to facilitate and stimulate true dialogue oriented towards the search for common points present in the hearts of different peoples and individuals to promote the relationship between different cultures and to resist discrimination and violence. Another program, World Without Wars and Violence, emerged in 1994 and was presented for the first time internationally in 1995 at the Open Meeting of Humanism held in Chile at the University of Santiago. That comes from the article, Nonviolence or Non-Existence? The Legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. by Robert J. Burroughs, posted April 2nd. We should carefully reflect on MLK's message to the world. MLK understood the relationship between America's war agenda and social justice and civil rights in America. Quote, no one who has any concern for the integrity and life of America today can ignore the present war. Vietnam. Unquote. One cannot be a civil rights leader without taking a stance against U.S.-led wars. That was from a new introduction by Michelle Chosodovsky to a transcription of Beyond Vietnam, Silence is Betrayal, Martin Luther King's historic 1967 speech, posted April 4th. The official story of the assassination of civil rights leader Martin Luther King is as follows. Martin King had been staying at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee with his friend and colleague, Ralph Abernathy. On April 4, 1968, around 6.01 p.m. local time, a single bullet from a high-powered rifle shot him in the face and brought him down. An ambulance took him to St. Joseph's Hospital, where he was pronounced dead an hour later. The shooter was identified as one James Earl Ray, an escaped convict, apparently motivated by racism, who had taken the shot from the rooming house across the street from the Lorraine Motel. He then fled the scene and the country, but was captured in London's Heathrow Airport and extradited back to the United States. Ray pleaded guilty on the advice of his lawyer and was sentenced to a 99-year life sentence. This account has come under question. In fact, much of the public is generally unaware that there was a wrongful death civil trial almost 20 years ago in which members of the King family contested the official story. The trial conclusively found that James Earl Ray could not possibly have been the killer. On the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the King assassination, we'll be spending the hour discussing what really happened, why this truth has been concealed, and what this historic episode teaches us about the prospects for confronting power in our society, as King tried to do. Our guest is William Pepper. He is a barrister admitted to the bar in the United Kingdom and in jurisdictions throughout the United States. He was a friend of King's in the final year of his life. He came to believe that James Earl Ray was a fall guy in the murder of Martin King to cover up for the involvement of a broad conspiracy involving the Memphis Police Department, the FBI, and the local mafia. He represented the King family at the wrongful death civil trial and has written now three books on the King assassination, Orders to Kill, The Truth Behind the Murder of Martin Luther King, an act of state, the execution of Martin Luther King, and his latest from 2016, The Plot to Kill King, the truth behind the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. He joined us from New York City. We asked Dr. William Pepper to give us some background on how he came to be associated with Martin King.
1: I had been a a journalist in Vietnam, and uh, when I returned... I published an article in uh, in Ramparts magazine called "The Children of Vietnam," that dealt with uh, American war crimes and uh, some of the reality of the war. He he was a subscriber to Ramparts. Saw the piece, read the piece, was very distressed by it, and asked to meet with me. And uh, so I met him and uh, opened up more files to him and. He uh, he was devastated by what his government was doing. Uh, I then worked with him that last year of his life uh, on really on the for the national conference for new politics. He asked me to run that, and we were looking to have a King Spock ticket, uh, which was subverted at a convention in Labor Labor Day weekend in Chicago.
0: You're talking but, about uh, Dr. Benjamin Spock.
1: Yes, it was Kagan Spock, uh, Benjamin Spock. Okay. That was the projection for the ticket. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And of course, the assassination was taking place. It took place on April 4th, 1968. And this would have been just right in the midst of the U.S. presidential uh, primary season.
1: Yes, it was. It was. Uh, We didn't have that third party ticket because. The convention with 5,000 delegates uh, was subverted and disrupted by uh, government agents, who made it made it impossible to run that kind of ticket because they, uh, the attending Black Caucus, which were uh, in, in small part but disruptive part, Blackstone Rangers. Uh, began to introduce anti-Semitic resolutions, which drove away all of the northern, northern uh, liberal Jewish money. So it cut the legs off from under the potential campaign.
0: Interesting. Now, when it came to the assassination, when you, you originally accepted the official story that James Earl Ray was the, the lone killer. You know they. uh, You know he had been uh, in a rooming house across from the hotel where King had been staying, and uh, or at least that's where he had uh, had a room uh, checked out, and you know that was the the official line. He pled guilty uh, in 1969 and uh, was sentenced to 99 years. When at what point did you start to doubt that official take on events?
1: Well, I began to. Doubted when I interrogated Ray for five hours in August of '78. Abernathy wanted me to do that. He and I and Jim Lawson and a uh, psychiatrist, a friend of mine, uh, attended that that uh, effectively that interrogation at the Brushing Mountain Penitentiary in August and. Ray w- raised a number of issues and a number of facts that c- conflicted with the official story and so I I decided at that point to begin to look into it and see what I could what I could find out for myself and that's really when this 40-year investigation began following the interrogation of Ray I would go to see him uh, periodically and, and get questions, and ask questions, and try to get more information from him. And he kept asking me to represent him, and I refused to do so until 1988. Which was ten years after I met him, because I, I had to be certain that he was, we all knew he was not the shooter. That was evident from the interrogation that I conducted in, in '78. But what we didn't know was what role he might have played in, in terms of the assassination. And it took 10 years for me to be convinced that he was an unknowing patsy.
0: Mm. Now, adjacent to this idea that he wasn't the shooter, the, the, there's the specter that there was a, a conspiracy involving a, a lot of different players that uh, that had conspired to to kill King and put James Earl Ray in this patsy position. W- did yes. you come? Was it the? Did you come to this realization at, the, at about the same time, or was there? Uh, you know, as you continued to interview James Earl Ray, that the specter of a conspiracy started to come out.
1: Well, the, the more I, I I dug into issues in Memphis, the more I became gradually convinced that this guy knew nothing about the the plan, but was really just being set up to take the fall, and uh, I mean that that became very clearly evident to me as I worked in Memphis.
0: Mm-hmm. So, tell us a little bit about the man himself. He had actually been serving a, a prison sentence and then escaped, correct? Yes. Okay. So uh the, the this, you you discovered at some point that there had actually uh, he had had some help in escaping from the, the the penitentiary where he had been uh detained, right?
1: Yes, that was arranged. Uh Fred <clears throat> Hoover sent $25,000 into Memphis with Clyde Tolson his number 2. And Tolson was always the intermediary meeting with the uh uh, the Dixie Mafia people and government and police people who were involved in, in the assassination. With respect to raid, they sent in 25,000 with Tolson. The head of the Dixie Mafia Russell Atkins took the 25,000 to the prison, and gave it to the warden to pay him for arranging the escape. James knew nothing about it, but they arranged, they had profiled him. As a, as an ideal candidate, patsy candidate, and then they uh, they arranged for this escape, and then they kept him under on, on a leash, and uh, knew where he was, and kept him under control, moved him around to have him where he 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 needed to be, uh, as as a patsy. So I I learned this because the. Sixteen-year-old son of the Dixie Mafia leader, uh, who went along with his father to, to give the money to the warden, so he he was able to confirm that. Mm.
0: And uh, over that period, so when he left, when he escaped, that was in '67, correct? Less than yes, a, less than a year before uh, the the assassination. And what was he doing? Uh, in that period between his escape and uh, the time he had been uh, given that access to that room at the um, oh, rooming house, well, he,
1: he was he was trying to get out of North America and trying to, he was trying very very hard to get into uh, into into Africa, and so that was his goal. He started to head toward Canada, and he he picked up a job and he had. A, had a job in a restaurant for a period of time and gathered a little bit of money then he went into canada and it was in montreal that he met raoul who offered to help get him papers and uh, get him out of the country and keep him out but he asked him to do certain he would have to do certain things for raoul before that and uh, raoul gave him money to buy a car and uh, and pretty much kept him on a on a string, uh, until they were ready to use him.
0: Mm. And there was uh, there was a period where he was up in Canada, right?
1: Yes, he was, this is in Montreal, where he met Raoul.
0: Yeah, uh, t- tell us a little bit about Raoul. He's a he's a mysterious figure that uh, um, that seems to be a, a very important player in this whole drama.
1: Well, he was a con- he was the handler for James. He was a Portuguese immigrant. Uh, I believe he was involved with military intelligence in, in Africa uh, uh, for Portugal. He came to the United States and um, had certain co- connections both with organized crime and with the government. And uh, he was. Uh, he he uh, was involved in activities for the government and he was the natural person they selected to uh take control and handle james and make sure that uh, he was where they wanted him to be so it was, he played a significant very significant role in the uh, and the assassination
0: yes mm. now i understand he ended up uh, uh, among the uh, the identities that james earl ray ended up adopting was one that would have given him a certain amount of uh, 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 protection in the event that some you know there was some intervention by the law enforcement that might have uh, uh, upset the plans to put him in that patsy role could, could you talk about that identity that he adopted
1: James was given the identity of a of a man who worked in a in a a weapons warehouse uh, outside of uh, Toronto in Canada. Uh, the identity was Eric S. Galt. G A L T. Uh, they gave him that identity because if James was ever ever stopped for for speeding or anything else, uh, that uh, any police check. Would would show uh, that he was he had the special security clearance and he he, uh, he could he would be let go uh, very very easily so that's why he was given the gold entity. He also there also was some somewhat of a physical resemblance between Gold and James.
0: Now, what can you tell us about uh, James Earl Ray's activities uh, while he was in Memphis, uh, leading up to that that Faithful Day, uh, April Fourth?
1: Well, he came. He came into town as he was instructed by Raoul. He had turned the. He had bought a weapon, and he had turned it over to Raoul uh, the night before, on the outskirts of Memphis. Then he came into Memphis uh, that day. And parked the car uh, in front of a rooming house where, he, as he was instructed, and he went upstairs, brought his belongings uh, upstairs, and took uh, rented a room from uh, from Bessie Brewer, who ran the rooming house. And it was a room that uh, had a window uh, overlooking the Lorraine, but it was a small room. And he would not spend much time there because Raoul would tell him that he was uh, meeting with some gun uh, sellers and he was needed for privacy to meet with them, to conduct purchases of weapons and things. But Ray uh, so Ray was not in the room a great deal. but the room was used, so we learned, as a staging place uh, for the shooting. and the the, the shooter, and uh, his spotter went down and met Lloyd Jowers and Earl Clark in the the bushes in the back of that rooming house.
0: Mm. Now, uh, we know that James Earl Ray was nowhere near the crime scene when the assassination took place. What was he doing?
1: Yeah, that's right. He, uh, He remembered that he had a flat spare tire. <clears throat> and that if Raul took the car as he thought he was going to uh, and ha- had any problems with a flat tire uh, there was a flat spare as well he wouldn't be very happy so James decided to go to a gas station and to uh, some blocks away and to have that spare tire repaired um, I- he was seen heading in that direction by two men who came out of uh, Jim's grill and who saw him driving uh, toward that gas station. That evidence was buried deep uh, in a file drawer and never referred to or used. Mm. Uh, James, When James was up at the gas station waiting, he heard uh, sirens. I, they, had, they had begun already to... Send the ambulance down to uh, <clears throat> the uh, the area where he was to meet. So he uh, he took off from the gas station, decided not to wait, and drove back toward the rooming house. But as he came up to the rooming house, he was waved away by the police, and he then just uh, decided that he should make a break and uh, head head out of there. Really, go to Memphis, go to uh, Atlanta, where he was intended to go um, and, and, and earlier, at Raoul's suggestion. So he, he but he, he left the Memphis area and headed uh,
0: headed south to Georgia. When did you get uh, your first real lead as to who uh, was involved in the assassination? your first lead
1: well i mean there, there were it was evolving evolving developments um, i i thought earl clark who was a captain of the police department uh was involved he was a very good shooter on the police force and very 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 much a racist <clears throat> turned out he wasn't he was only acting as a spotter for the shooter, who was another policeman who was an excellent shot. Um, bits and pieces of information started to come from various witnesses all along. So it's not it's not easy. To, when we ran a mock trial in 1993, our research and, and, and investigation uh, produced results which led us in the direction of the army being there and they were there with an eight man squad as backups but they also had two photographers on the roof of the, um, the roof of the fire station so it, it all developed gradually and was put together gradually
0: where did you uh, first start to notice the involvement of Lloyd Jowers Jowers
1: was always a question because he owned the grill, which, uh, from the back of which the shot took place, and uh, he, was, uh, he, was al- he was always in the frame, but we never put him so directly in it as when uh, he carried the smoking rifle into the back of the kitchen, broke it down, then took it out and put it on the shelf in the, uh, in the restaurant. Uh, Jowers' um, secret was kept by Betty Spates uh, from 1968 to 1994, when I was able to break her down, and and she told me the story of of Lloyd uh, and what what she thought Lloyd had done.
0: Now, Lloyd Jowers, uh, he was also uh, he was a former police officer. Before becoming becoming the uh, proprietor of the the of the Jim's Grill, um, he he had made some connections with the local mafia, right?
1: Yes, he was very close to Frank Liberto, who uh, who hired him to do this job, owed a lot of money to Liberto. That all got that all got that debt got forgiven, and he put a hundred thousand dollars in a. In an unused, uh, in an un- unused stove, <clears throat> and he bought a taxi cab company after this, after the assassination. So he was he was well in with them. His gambling debt was forgiven, and he was given quite a bit of money to to cooperate.
0: Okay, so uh, in in terms of Lloyd's involvement. Uh, uh... in the in the assassination could, could you comment a little bit more about what you've been able to piece together that that what he did in that that critical couple of hours uh... during and after the uh... the, the um, assassination
1: well it's a, it's a, it's sort of uh... Um, difficult to, to provide all the details we we knew that uh, James was uh, was a patsy. We knew that Jowers had involvement because he brought the smoking rifle in. Earl Clark, who was out there as a spotter, went down over the wall. He was seen by a taxi driver who was killed that evening. The shooter was a fellow named Frank Strouser. And Jawors was reluctant to name him, and we only got his name uh, gradually over a period of time from Lenny Curtis, who was a janitor at the rifle range, where he saw Strauss get the, the special rifle and practice with it all day uh, before leaving around 3 p.m. Uh, so I mean, this, is what, this is what we know in terms of setting up the shooting that was taken from the bushes in the back, in the, in the back area of the, of the uh, rooming house and uh, Jim's Grill.
0: You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. In case you've just joined us, we're speaking with uh, Dr. William Pepper. He is a human rights lawyer, most known for his defense of James Earl Ray in the trial of the murder of Martin Luther King Jr., and the author of three books, the most recent being The Plot to Kill King, The Truth Behind the Assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, Dr. William Pepper, I'm wondering if we could uh, uh, also talk about uh, the various uh, ways in which the... Uh, the, the the king delegation in memphis had been uh, somewhat set up uh the fact that for example he had been asked to change or made to change rooms from uh, a more secure area at the lorraine motel to one where he would be exposed on the balcony uh do, do you can you maybe provide us some insights as to how and and why those, because uh, that figures into the, the overall conspiracy too, right?
1: Yeah, the Dixie Mafia family, and in fact, the wife of the, of the leader of that family, uh, received a phone call um, sometime shortly before the 4th of April, uh, because King had only arrived there, and he was, uh, he was placed in room 202, which was a secure room. But she received a phone call and, uh, from her, <clears throat> her son, who along with Frank Holloman was running the operation, the assassination operation. And she was asked to go to, talk to one of the, uh, one of the Adkins employees was a black fella called OZ. And she was asked to call him, ask him to get to Jesse Jackson and ask Jackson, to go to the owner of the motel and and move the room. Um, her son was there at the time that she took the call when she was making the arrangements, and she discussed it with him. So that that the son was my my informant of those events. Martin was moved to room three hundred six, <clears throat> mm-hmm. where he w- it was an open area and a clear target. Yes. And that's really what, uh, what was required. When, when that happened, Mrs. Bailey, after the shot, Mrs. Bailey realized what, uh, what she had done. She actually managed the motel. And she said, oh, my God, what have I done? she ran to her room and collapsed, had a cerebral hemorrhage, and was taken to the St. Joseph's Hospital where she died. About five days later hmm. so the the room change was organized uh, by the conspirators and uh, uh, was was thus carried out
0: okay now there's also the the fact that there's a, a major you know involvement on the part of uh, you know other figures that would have acted as backup in case this uh, sniper uh, in the bushes, had missed. Can you talk about how that that was organized?
1: You're, looking, you're talking about the backup. Yes. Well,
0: the backup shooters.
1: The army, the army had a an eight a team in Memphis um, as a backup unit. They were in, they were instructed at Cab, uh, they came from Cab Shelby, uh, in Mississippi. And they were given their instructions, and they left around 4.30 in the morning. They were shown two photographs, one of Andy Young and one of Martin Luther King. Those were the targets. They were told they were enemies of the state. They drove in and took up positions, one on the roof of a fire station, and we believe the other one on the the, uh, water tower, each with a spotter, and they were waiting. If um, if the shooter, the civilian shooter, did not do the job, they were prepared to do it. They were not going to let Martin King ever get to Memphis. He he was too dangerous. I mean, from Memphis uh, to uh, Washington, he was too dangerous, and they were not going to allow that. Uh, to allow him to bring half a million people who could turn into a revolutionary mob. So they were, were determined to kill him one way or the other they had the initial plan with the uh, with Strauser as a civilian quote civilian he was always a police officer shooter and the and the army uh, was backing him up in case he could couldn't get the job done hmm
0: Um, Some other details uh, uh, relating to the the conspiracy, the fact that police uh, – that there had been some irregularities in terms of uh, uh, arranging for for police to not be at or near the scene uh, in the run-up to the assassination?
1: Sorry, let me have that question again, exactly oh, what you
0: want. Okay, well, I'm just wanting to, uh, you know, clarify some other details that, uh, you know, ir- irregularities in terms of police being called off their normal uh, rounds, you know, in the lead-up to the assassination on April 4th.
1: Well, that day, two, two the two black firemen at the local fire station uh, were replaced. They were told to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Dr. King's usual black bodyguard unit was kept in the police station. They were not not involved. So they were taking all the necessary precautions to make sure that uh, the effort would go off uh, promptly and smoothly and without uh, any eyewitness observations. They... uh, Uh, also had two photographers put on the roof. That was the military side of it. Two photographers put on the roof to shoot the back of the Lorraine Motel at the time of the shooting. One one was to shoot up the balcony, the other was to shoot on the ground. And he was the one who brought his, his camera around into the bushes and actually caught the shooter lowering his rifle. Um, the shooter, he said, who was not James Earl Ray. Mm.
0: There was also the issue of on the morning of April 5th, the the next day, uh, they'd sent up a crew to clear the bushes uh, near the the grill from the location where uh, people locate, some witnesses had seen the the shooter. That also was a...
1: They sent a cleanup crew in from the Public Works Department to clean up the entire... um, back area uh... which was filled with high bushes and brush and they they cut all that down and they they cleaned it up thoroughly so that it, it would never appear that a shooter could be there without being uh, spotted so they took all of the, the, the brushes off and, and even one one tree limb i think was cut down so they they made it a safe haven uh, for the uh, for the shooter Mm. Uh, and he then was able to uh uh to escape running back through back through the the back of the the building along the side of it because it was a vacant lot along the side and out onto the sidewalk Mm.
0: that was was there any uh, concern. I mean, the fact is, as I understand it, like the Memphis Police Department had ordered, uh, ma- sent out the orders to clean up that area, which was uh, a credible, uh, credibly accused crime scene. So th- that that's an irregularity for which uh, there was no official explanation, if I'm not mistaken.
1: No, there was no official explanation. There was no, no public knowledge that it was done, and they cut they cut back a large. A bush, uh, intervening bush between the fire station and a vacant lot, because if that bush had been there, then their their story of James having seen a police car and panicked and dropped dropping the bundle in front of a, a, a store would have been, you know, would, would have held true. Without that bush there, uh, James could have seen. The, uh, the the police car. But with the bush there, even if there was a police car, there was no way he could have seen it.
0: Now, uh, going back to the assassination itself, uh, it, the, the shot took place at 6.01. An ambulance came uh, and take, took him to uh, St. Joseph's Hospital. Now, could you maybe comment on uh, that choice of hospital? Uh, you know, why... King would have been taken there, as opposed to another location.
1: well, it was fairly close, but it wasn't as close as uh, a couple of other hospital facilities, <clears throat> but of course, they had to take him to St. Joseph's because that was if if it if it became necessary, that was where they were going to make sure that he didn't leave alive,
0: uh-huh could you expand on that uh you know what what happened from from what you've been able to uh, determine what happened uh from the time of of the arrival at the hospital saint joseph hospital that evening
1: well he was uh moved into the emergency room eventually not immediately but eventually they they began to work on him and they were trying to identify pieces of of uh, paper that had been dropped so that they could know their way out at the right time but for the time being they were ensconced in the hospital um, Raul was there as well with with uh, with them um. as important to know about Raul was that he didn't have his passport with him and yet, he was he was on the list of the people who should uh, leave the city as quickly as possible. So that was that was the, the escape area that they had left Frank Solomon and, uh, and his crowd. Now, as you back out of here, you will tend to see...
0: Okay, could you? Uh, th- there was uh, an unusual, according to your book, there was an unusual number of military or uh, in- in- intelligence people in the uh, in inside the hospital.
1: Yes, they got there early, and they identified everybody. They knew every nurse and every doctor. Uh, they were. Uh, they were very well informed and uh, uh, and supposedly protective. Although they weren't being protective, they were being they were effectively there to facilitate whatever Dr. Breen Bland wanted to do. And he was the one who took control of the room and control of the operation in the hospital. And he had been he's the Atkins family doctor. He had been out with the Atkins family. Oh, a couple of weeks before, and uh, he insisted that they have, uh, that the group have uh, a strong, a strong position um, with respect with respect to uh, uh, covering up the uh, the uh, the assassination by Strauser.
0: Okay, so the um, – you know, again, according to your book, Strausser, the, who you identified as the shooter, actually didn't kill uh, King. That uh, King appears to have – or the job was finished, you might say, inside that hospital. Uh, in his last moments alive, uh, who was with King?
1: Well, uh, Dr. Bland, they chased everyone out of the room. As they were going out, the last one leaving was the nurse uh, Shelby. Uh, she heard them gathering spit up in their mouths and had caught her attention as she was at the door going out. She then turned around, saw the, the three men, two in suits, and uh, and Doctor Bland. <coughs> so, the, <coughs> excuse me, she saw the three of them spit on the body. <coughs> that was when she saw Bland take a pillow and put the pillow over Dr. King's face and effectively suffocating him. The next morning when she went home at 11 o'clock, she called her family around and said, I don't know why they had to, to kill him. And then she told them the story. And it was years, years later, of course, that uh, I deposed her, one of her sons who knew the whole story from his mother and who uh, under, under oath and video transcription uh, told us <clears throat> exactly what had happened to Dr. King. He was killed in the emergency room. Uh, he might have died anyway. He was badly injured by the bullet, but they were not taking any chances. There's no way that we're going to let him bring the mob into Washington. They were afraid it could turn into a revolutionary situation.
0: So a a high level conspiracy, there's a a somewhat um, interest (laughs) yet another interesting aspect to this case, this idea that it wasn't just happenstance that King happened to be in Memphis, that he was somehow drawn there, that the sanitation workers strike itself was bait for this trap of getting him to Memphis specifically. Could you comment on that?
1: Well, the sanitation workers' strike was the reason that he came to Memphis, that's true. The sanitation workers were determined to strike independently of Dr. King, but two of their members had been crushed on a rainy day in the, in the back of the garbage truck where they, where they went for shelter. They weren't allowed to go into... Regular shelters that other workers used in Memphis, <clears throat> and they were crushed in the back of the garbage truck by a uh, the, the ma- a man who was a member of, <clears throat> excuse me, of the Atkins group. That precipitated a great deal of anger, sympathy, compassion for the strikers and Dr. King. <clears throat> Determined that he was going to go and do the best that he could uh, on their behalf he went to lead an abort, a, a march which became disrupted and abort, abortive so he he went back to atlanta decided to come again and do a, work with one of the black radical groups uh to try to make it a peaceful march and that black radical one of that black radical group the invaders were also uh chosen to leave told to leave the hotel about, <clears throat> about 15 minutes before the assassination they were dangerous. They could have seen something. They also were armed. So the, the plotters decided to get them out of there, and they were ordered out of the hotel.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, – a, just in the last few years, it, it's, as I understand it, that you, you came across – this is since the, the civil – uh, trial uh, that you represented on behalf of the uh, the King family, you came up with this uh, new information that pointed you in the direction of this Frank Strausser, and this comes down to uh, uh, an individual who uh, whose identity you kept secret until he died. Could you tell us more about that last tidbit of information which really helps complete the picture?
1: Well, Lenny Curtis is the man's name, and he was a janitor in the, uh, rifle range, uh, the police department. And that's where Strousser and Clark used to, used to work and hang out. Uh, he saw a special rifle come in and be given to Strousser, And he saw Strausser on the day of the assassination practicing all day with that rifle. And then he saw him leave around three o'clock. And Strousser had at various times said he would, he would be king was going to get his head blown off that type of thing so he was uh, suspicious of Strasser. he also uh, found that he was they were suspicious of him and uh, they kept him under surveillance unmarked car outside of his house excuse me um he was lighting a cigarette going into his house one day, and he smelled gas. He had to put the cigarette out. He saw a V-sign in a tree above his, behind his kitchen window. And then finally, the final straw was so Strauss asked him to come with him, ride with him downtown when he was going to pick up uh, paychecks for the men. And on the way down, he didn't go the usual route. He went through a wooded area, and he showed his gun by brushing his coat back, and, uh, asked, uh, Lenny who he thought, what he thought about, uh, Ray being the murderer of Dr. King, and Lenny quickly said, yes, of course he was, everything points to him. He was, of course, speaking for, for his life. So down, they went down, they came back, um, but he had, a, he had enough suspicion of Strausser from the, the background information and experience and then the shooting and practicing of the rifle all day long. But I couldn't use, I deposed Lenny, put him under oath and transcribed him and videotaped him. But we couldn't use that. We couldn't use that until, uh, un- until he, he died because I, I, would, I had no doubt that they would kill him. So we kept that uh, as a part of our gathering information, but quietly held.
0: Mm. So, uh, William Pepper, could you comment then on, on what makes this case so important in terms of uh, helping us understand the uh, the ability of... Ordinary citizens to to confront power in our society. What what is the p- particular significance of this uh, assassination and cover up?
1: Well, uh, we because of the evidence we've uncovered, there's no question that this was a government operation, and it was it was an operation led by the FBI by J Edgar Hoover, uh, using his number two, Tolson and using the head of police and fire in Memphis, Frank Holloman, who used to work in uh, Hoover's office and who, toward the end, became very involved in the details of the assassination. So it was a government operation using a local Dixie Mafia uh, people and and a local a local hitman with strong government uh, backup. Uh, so that that we know, we, we know government can do that. Government did do that. What average citizens can do is is really to try to pay attention to their government and what they're doing, what the officials are doing, and and be as well informed as possible about that. And also, I think probably move to change the whole culture of the of this country from uh, materialism and. Capitalism and militarism into something much more humane, and that would require really extensive work on re- on amending the Constitution of the United States. And it's uh, that's a, that's a task, but it's a task of, in my view that must be undertaken at some point in time. But an alert citizenry is uh, essential for the salvation of a democracy and unfortunately in America we don't have that alert citizenry yet hopefully with cases like this coming to the foreground uh, we will be able to have it
0: I have just one last question because I know you got to go but uh, there has not been a lot of respectful media attention uh, paid towards uh, the case that you've uh, put forward C- could you comment on, on why that is so
1: well, the, the corporate media in America, for the most part, does not want to cover cases like this. Corporate media uh, is determined to keep the status quo and have the credibility of governmental agents. You can imagine uh, what the people would think if they knew that their government agencies were acting in this way, not only domestically, of course, but internationally, as they have been. So that's that's really the case. It's been a, it's been a cover up by the, the mainstream media, which is corporate controlled. There may be a breakthrough on that with with the new Washington Post uh, doing a major feature on this case, either uh, coming out either on this Sunday or or Monday. So you one might look for it. But let me encourage people to get try to get the the copy of the book, The Plot to Kill King anyway, because that's the, that's the one way to get the truth about this case. I put in every deposition, every piece of testimony that's of, of, evident, of uh, evidentiary value. It's all there in that one book. So any students of history are free to uh, read it and revise this this nation's history with respect to at least
0: this case. Well, uh, Dr. William Pepper, I um, I did have the great fortune nine years ago of meeting and uh, interviewing uh, King's uh, speechwriter uh, Vincent Harding, and I now can add to that uh, having had the opportunity to interview another key figure in his uh, life, uh, William Pepper. So thank you so much for agreeing to this interview, and uh, uh I I do hope we can uh, speak again at some point.
1: Okay, thank you very much.
0: That was William Pepper, human rights lawyer and author of three books on the assassination of Martin Luther King. William Pepper has also represented Sirhan Sirhan in the trial for the murder of Senator and 1968 presidential candidate Robert Kennedy. Another instance believed to be a high-level conspiracy in which the official assassin is believed to be a patsy or scapegoat to conceal the conspiracy. William Pepper's website is williampepper.com. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour podcast at globalresearch.ca and airing on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. Some of our content airs occasionally through Rabble Radio and can be found at rabble.ca. To leave feedback on our program, please email us at globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. In a final commemoration to the death of one of America's most iconic civil rights heroes, we'll air a song by the legendary Nina Simone. The song was performed at the Westbury Music Festival on Long Island, New York, within days of Dr. King's assassination. Composed by Miss Simone's bass player, Gene Taylor, it's called Why the King of Love is Dead. The Global Research News Hour will return in seven days. Thank you for joining us.
2: Once upon this planet earth Lived a man of humble birth Preaching love and freedom For his fellow man He was dreaming of the day Peace would come to earth Stick and he spread this message all across the land. Turn the other cheek, he'd bleed. Love thy neighbor was his creed. Pain, humiliation, death he did not dread, with his Bible at his side, <laughs> from his pose he did not hide. It's hard to think of this great man is dead. Oh yeah.